the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is one thing. It is one fruit that has multiple and many different expressions. Those fruits are other ex- those expressions are listed in Galatians chapter 5 and include love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and a couple more. And each week we're taking a look at one of these expressions of the fruit of the spirit, and this week we are looking at the f- the fruit of the spirit in its expression of kindness. For our passage today, we're looking at Luke chapter 10, which is a very famous passage of Scripture and a passage that exemplifies both the character of kindness but also the challenge that kindness puts for us. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders, and this is what happens. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from, Jericho to Jerus- from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we ask for the outpouring of your spirit. For Lord, it is entirely possible to live a kind life and to not have a supernaturally changed heart. It is entirely possible to live a morally upright life and not have a life that has been changed by you. So, Lord, would you give us insight into your word, that our hearts would be changed, that we would overflow in kindness out of love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Kindness. You could define it as someone acting in the goodness, out of goodness of heart. Kindness being a practical demonstration of love, of care, being compassion, mercy, Helpfulness, the opposite of kindness would be selfishness and self-righteousness. It might be quite possible at this moment in the sermon, having heard the topic of kindness, having heard that the passage is the parable of the Good Samaritan, that the thought might go through your mind where you say, okay, I know how this is going to go. Be kind. All right, you know, I'm a nice person. I need to look for some opportunities, maybe to go the extra mile. Maybe this will expose some ways that I need to be kinder to people and remind me how to be a better person. Let me just challenge you is that if you are settled 
If you are settled within yourself for a kindness that you are able to generate from your own strength, then you don't need to be here this morning. But if you are looking to understand a kindness that overflows from you because of the work of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, this passage not only exposes us, but it challenges us and it instructs us. We begin to see this in verse 29. There's a question that is asked that I think is a question that many of us ask in a slightly different way. The teacher of the law comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit an eternal life? Jesus says, what does the text say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And it says this, but desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, it was fashionable at the time within the teaching of the religious leaders. It was fashionable to hold a position that said the biblical mandates for love don't equally apply to everybody. And they would teach. You don't actually need to love Samaritans because Samaritans are the enemies of the Jews. And we all know that they're inferior. It was, it was taught because they're a mixed race. And they're people who are perverters of scriptures. And so when he asked this question... Desiring to justify myself, desiring to justify himself, who is my neighbor? What he is trying to do is he is trying to exclude responsibility by making some people not his neighbor. And therefore, any shortcoming doesn't fall upon him. That's how it was fashionable then for people to justify themselves. Today, it is fashionable for people to justify themselves in a slightly different manner. I mean, certainly we would all agree that we need to love other people, and our society would agree that you need to love other people. Sure, you have to do this, but in order for you to love other people, first you need to love yourself. That's what needs to happen first. And it's taught in many different self-help books, a variety of different mantras, songs, movies, a variety of things. And it's even overtly encouraged that self-love is not selfish. Self-love is not selfish. For you cannot truly love another until you know how to love yourself. And the argument is, if you don't love yourself, you're not going to be able to love another person. For those of you who are a little bit less emotional, it would probably be stated this way. No one's going to take care of you except for you. So you make sure that you take, that you make sure that you take care of you. So it does beg the question then. So when it is a time to show kindness to somebody else, when there is kindness that you need to show to someone, to another person, or you think about demonstrating kindness to deal with the problems that are in our, the problems that are in our world, I mean, let's be real. How much is enough? I mean, there are some people, they're just like black holes. I mean, they will suck the life out of you. And I mean, I'm a nice person. How far do I have to go? How much is enough? To state it differently, desiring to justify ourselves, we ask, how kind do I need to be? How much is enough? And what is the order of love for myself versus love for other people? But that's not really my concern this morning. The concern that we're focusing on is how does the gospel, how does the relationship with Jesus Christ actually produce kindness? And that's what we'll be focusing on this morning. We're going to examine first off the parable and understand what it means, the problem that the parable generates for us, and then finally look at the solution that the parable gives to us. Let's understand what's going on in this parable. 
it shows us the extraordinary character of kindness. What happens? This man is walking from Jerusalem to Jericho. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was 18 miles long. It descended 3,200 feet over those 18 miles, and it went through crags and fissures. It was a mountainous road and a mountainous rocky road. There was a man who was traveling this road who fell among robbers. He was stripped, he was beaten, and he was, leaving, he was left for half dead. We might equate this to, it's like if you were today to walk through a dark alley in a bad neighborhood, and it was miles to the next street light, and there was no cell service where you were. What do you do? Well, the man is left there half dead on the road, and before we jump into a critique of the Levite and the priest, you know, common sense would probably say that if you are in a dark alley, and you find a man who is half dead groaning on the road, the most prudent thing for you to do would be to run away and go get help and send someone official, you know, someone official, some official, to go down there and to deal with it and to deal with the situation. So what happens? Walking along this road, there's this man laying there half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, what did he do? He crossed, he went to the other sidewalk. He passed to the other side of the street. Likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, stepped over to the other side of the street. The priests were those who were the worship leaders. They were the teachers. Levites were the ones who assisted the priests. The Levites were not priests themselves. And you can consider the struggle that these guys were dealing with. I mean, they're priests. They're Levites. I mean, they work for God, after all, and they're probably on their way to work doing some aspect of God's work, and if they touch this guy who's half dead, they're ceremonially unclean. You know, it would mess up their garbs and the garments that they have. It would get in the way of their God-given duties and their God-given responsibilities as religious leaders. So it could be argued. But to do so would disobey a clear command For both their roles, for priests were public health officials. They were specifically charged with the care of the needy. The Levites had the obligation to distribute money to those who were uh, poor and those who were distressed and for those who were sick. And so the the priest and the Levite walk down the road, they cross over to the other side, and neither one is kind, neither one is merciful. What is Jesus doing by highlighting them? He is criticizing comfortable religious people who shield themselves from the needs of others. He's criticizing comfortable religious people who shield themselves from the needs of others. Our pride, our selfishness leads us to be unkind. But kindness notices those in need and does not avoid them. Kindness does not ask, is this this responsibility mine? Whose responsibility is this? Kindness asks, How can I serve? How can I show kindness? And I'm very grateful to be in a church where we do not close our eyes to issues of of poverty and issues of pain within our community. I'm grateful to be in a church that that is not indifferent to issues of injustice, but is committed to caring for the fatherless, caring for the widow, caring for the orphan through our living H2O ministry. I'm grateful to be part of a church that is committed to not just giving people fish, but teaching people how to fish, as is going on through our work-life ministry. I'm grateful that we've got a church where we have deacons who don't ask the question, do I have to serve or do I need to serve, but ask the question, how can I serve? How can I show kindness? 
And so walking along the road is not just simply these who have passed by, but there is the Samaritan. The Samaritan who is the despised enemy, a half-breed, if you will. One who, if he were the one who was beaten on the road, the Jews would justify that's one less Samaritan that we have to worry about. And the Samaritan comes by and he shows kindness. Kindness that reminds us that we need to show love, care, and compassion even to those with whom we would not normally have a relationship. And how does he do so? He comes upon the man. He binds up his wounds, presumably with his own clothes. He pours on oil and wine. Oil would be like applying neosporin. Wine would be a cleansing agent. He puts him on his own animal, that he sticks him in his car, gets his own car bloody, gets his own fabric bloody, gets his own stuff dirty in this. And then he takes him to an inn. He doesn't outsource the man's care. He personally attends to his needs. He gives the innkeeper two denarii, which is two days' wages. And he promises, when I return, I will give you, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you. His generosity was not limited, but it was lavish. And a supernaturally changed heart is a generous heart. It gives, and it gives sacrificially. It's just what happens when the Spirit of God works in someone's life. And so having given this parable, Jesus asks the question, which of these men, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Not which one was a neighbor, which one was this guy's neighbor. Which one proved to be a neighbor? You see, kindness asks the question not, who is my neighbor, but how can I be a neighbor? Not, am I being kind? Am I being kind enough? But how can I show kindness? Showing availability, usefulness, benevolence, caring. This parable really exposes us. Exposes us that we dare not try to justify ourselves. It exposes us that the mercy of God, the compassion of God, the kindness of God, is far beyond our thoughts and far beyond our comprehension. And it is through that that it begins to expose the problem that we see and that we have with radical kindness. The problem that gets shown in this passage. Right now, in our society, we live in an intensely moral society. In an intensely moral society. In some ways, you could argue that our society is more moral than any other society before. Is that there are always groups of people telling other groups of people what they ought to do. And how they ought to respond. And there are hundreds and thousands of moral movements telling other people what they ought to do. Right now, some common ones is the Me Too movement that's going on. Of course, stop human trafficking. The debate of the last couple of years of Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter. Currently, with various uh, technology breaches, there's what data companies ought to do with people's privacy, how they ought to respond. Not only those, but there's the pro-life, um, pro-choice debate, the abortion debate that continues on. There's more recently the March for Our Lives, uh, gun rights issues that are going on there. There's always some current level of free speech and debate about free speech. We live in a society that is inundated with people telling other people what they ought to do, how they ought to respond. And so when we examine the story of the Good Samaritan, we look at them and we say, you know what? The Levite and the priest, they ought to have done something. But why? 
why? Uh, on what basis should they have ought to have done something? On what basis does any one of these groups posit that someone else ought to respond in a certain way? Why should we be kind? Why ought we to be kind? I believe this problem was exemplified, this problem in our society of wrestling with what is the basis of morality was exemplified this past week in the hearings, in the Senate committee hearings for the confirmation of the CIA director, or the CIA director nominee, uh, Gina Haspel. In her, and as I mention these things, my concern here is not the content of the debate. My concern here is how the basis of morality is being decided. In her confirmation hearing, she confirmation hearing, she says this. She said, I believe very strongly in American values, and America being an an example to the rest of the world. That is why I support the fact that we we have chosen to hold ourselves to a stricter moral standard. Again, on what basis? And then she says this, my moral compass is strong. My parents raised me right. I know the difference between right and wrong, and I would not allow the CIA to undertake activity that is immoral, even if it is technically legal. What's the issue? What's the basis of a moral decision? And in one op-ed that was trying to summarize the arguments that were going on and and articulate the different positions in response to her Senate testimony, one op-ed said this, in terms of articulating other people's opinions. What's legal and what's moral are different. Right and wrong are subjective. Not everyone's moral compass points to the same true north. That's why giving definition, one person says, that's why giving something, definition to something seemingly as anodyne as American values became a flashpoint during Haspel's testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee. Why of American values? Because nobody agrees on what American values are. Everyone insists that that you ought to behave according to American values, but what is the basis of those values? This is the dilemma not only of our society, but also of individuals, and it's a tension that begs the question, were Haspel's actions, were were they acceptable or not? And on what basis? Let's continue the line of thought. Was the Levite, were the Levite and priest wrong to do what they did by passing by? Did they do what they ought to do? On what basis do you make that decision? Was the good Samaritan right in having to care for the person? Again, on what basis? And we listen to this and we say, of course the Levite and priest were wrong. Of course the good Samaritan was right. Why? Why? There's this mantra in our society, that many of us deeply hold on to, even though we would not like to not admit it. And the mantra is this, is that each person must determine right and wrong for themselves. Each, each person determines what is right and wrong. And you know what? Who are you to tell me what I ought to do? And to be clear, this is not just a conversation that goes on outside of the Christian world, outside of the church. It's a conversation that goes on inside the church. It is, I have this conversation fairly regularly. If I'm talking to someone who is uh, engaged in very morally, morally compromising behavior, and I say, well, let's examine what Scripture has to say about this, and I go to some passages that are unambiguous, 
the response very often is this. No, that's just your interpretation of the Bible. I interpret the Bible differently. Actually, no. Scripture is clear. This would be the interpretation of anyone who wants to have an understanding at its most basic level. Well, that's just not how I read it. Why is that compelling? Like, why does that logically hold true in a person's mind? Like, how do do they actually come to that? Why? Because it is so deep-seated and so ingrained within us to say, I'm the one who determines what is right and wrong within myself. It is determined within me. So when Gina Haspel says, I believe in American values, I'm glad we hold ourselves to a stricter moral value, moral standards, my moral compass is strong, the critique that's levied against her is, is that some people say, well, you know, she says this, but not everyone's moral compass points to true north. What's the assumption of the person who states that? Hers doesn't, but mine does. Not everyone's moral compass points to true north. I think Scripture would actually agree with this in a couple different ways. First, it would agree that everyone does have a moral compass. They have a moral compass because they were created in the image of God, and God put inside people a sense of right and wrong and a sense of of what is true and what is right. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God. The other thing, though, he says is, though, is uh, my moral compass... The statement, not everyone's moral compass points to true north, Scripture would go further and say, actually, no one's moral compass points to true north. Every person's moral compass is distorted. So it continues to ask the question, what is true north and what is the basis for such a decision? Every culture until ours recently had a mechanism, had a way to appeal to what people ought to do. This isn't unique to Christianity. This is true of every culture outside of Western culture in the last 100 years, 150 years. Every culture until ours had a mechanism to appeal to people how they ought to behave and what they ought to do. Why? Because every culture held that there was a moral source that was present outside of the individual. It may be a religious text. It may be the government. It may be Rome. Take your pick. But there is a moral standard that occurred outside of the individual. Our society has rejected that. And so what happens then is that the only way to get more people to tell other people what they ought to do is that you just get a whole lot more people on your side telling the other side what they ought to do, and you overpower them. You just shout them down. You just be the loudest voice because there is no basis for doing so. Now, what does this have to do with kindness? Absolutely everything. Because it asks the question, on what basis should people be kind? Why should someone be kind? Why should someone be nice? And so you can appeal, well, people ought to be kind. Well, why? Why ought they to be kind? So you can give a variety of different appeals. You can appeal to their pride. You know what? I don't like mean people. I don't want to be a mean person. I want to be the type of person who is kind and who is known as kind, so therefore I'm going to be kind. And it's an appeal to pride. You can appeal to comfort. You know what? I want to be a part of a society where everybody is nice. I want to be a part of a society where everybody is kind because I like interacting with kind people. And so the way that everyone to have a kind society is that everybody ought to be kind because that is a lot more comfortable. 
You can appeal to security. You know what? I, if I needed help, if I was the man lying on the road groaning half dead, I'd want somebody to do that for me. And so the way that we need to, so that if I'm ever in that situation, I'd want someone to help me. And the best way for that to happen is if everybody just says, if you're in need, we ought to help other people because our society would be a whole lot more secure. Or you can appeal to divine justice, divine karma, if you, or whatever distortion you want to take. And it says, you know what? If you're not kind, God's not going to be kind to you. What goes around comes around. If you're not kind, fate, fate won't be kind to you. Those are all basis of appeal that our society uses why people ought to be nice and do a variety of different things. You can appeal to any one of those, or you can appeal to the love of God as the basis. This entire parable stems as an illustration of the opening statement. The question was, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the man responds, and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. What's the answer here? You can appeal to kindness on the basis of what everyone else ought to do for their sake, for your sake, what have you. Or you can appeal to kindness, to love, out of love for God and love for neighbor. In Scripture, particularly for we who stand on this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know Scripture tells us that we love because God first loved us. Scripture says it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. For while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. And not only did he die for us to take our penalty, but he was our substitute, and he adopted us into our, his family so that we might be co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And when you experience, when you personally experience the love of God, not just this intellectual abstract principles that you assume in your head, but when you personally experience the love of God, something supernatural happens. It moves you to want to love other people. It moves you to show love to other people. So this parable begins by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or love your neighbor as yourself. But even such a command, we can do that for our own sake. You can love for your own sake, on the basis of pride, on the basis of comfort, security, karma. You can love for your own sake. You can say, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go beyond that. I'm going to love another person for their sake, which is, which is good. But when you love someone for their sake, it leads to the question of asking, okay, well, when is enough enough? I mean, how much do I have to do? How much do I have to do for this person? When is enough enough? And neither one of those requires a supernaturally changed heart. Or, another, the third option is that you love not for your sake, not for the other person's sake, but you love, you show kindness for God's sake. You show kindness to others for God's sake. What does that mean? I've been reading Augustine lately, who wrote in the 300s. And one of Augustine's foundational principles is he says, God alone is worthy of our ultimate love. And what Augustine is saying is that God, because of who God is, God is inherently worthy of love. He inherently should be loved simply because of who he is. And it's the experience sometimes that parents experience when they have their first child. See it a little bit more often in, in dads, where you have dads who aren't kid people, 
and all of a sudden they have a child, and this newborn baby comes out of the womb, and the dad says, I, I just love him. I, I just love him. I, I, I didn't know that I could love someone who I never met before 10 seconds ago. I had no idea that I could actually love another human being as much as I love this child right now. In fact, I've never loved a child in my entire life. But suddenly, I have this overbounding love for this child before me. Why does that happen? It's because for parents, their children are inherently worthy of love. And because they're inherently worthy of love from a parent to a child, that child is love. And Augustine is saying, God is inherently worthy of our love. He's inherently worthy of our ultimate love, that if you know God, that what happens is that that just overflows into love for God. But Augustine goes on to say this. He says, so we love God for God's sake, and we also love people for God's sake. We love God for God's sake, and we love other people for God's sake. Why be kind? Because by being kind, this is a way not simply to show the love of God, which it is, but it is also a way to show love for God. It is a way to show that you love God. It is a way to show that God is your ultimate love and the thing that you most desire. And because it is the way that you most desire, the one that you most desire, Being kind to another person, loving another person overflows because here's an opportunity for me to show my love for God. So you take these couple pieces together. If there is no God, there is no reason to say what one group ought to do or what someone ought not to do. If there is no God, there is no reason to say that one ought to be kind. But if there is a God... Not only is there now a true north, an objective moral standard because God is perfect and holy and just, not only is there a true north, but what also happens is that every person that you encounter every day in every situation becomes a new opportunity for you to show the love of God, but more than that, for you to show love for God. And that's the secret. That's how a supernaturally changed heart works, is that you begin to love other people, not for your sake, not for their sake, but for God's sake. You love other people because it is a way for you to show love for God. And suddenly what happens is if you've got a difficult person in your life, and you're loving them, and you're showing kindness to them, and you're like, you know what, why can't this person ever say thank you? When is this person ever going to recognize all that I'm doing for them? Suddenly, if you shift it to, I am loving this person because this is just an opportunity for me to show love for God, you're freed from it. You're freed from needing a response. You're free to actually love them and to genuinely love them because you're not loving them for your sake or for their sake, but you're loving them for God's sake. And so if you know the love of God, if you have experienced the love of Christ Jesus, may your days be filled with these opportunities. May you want to show mercy. May you want to show compassion. May you want to show kindness to people. Not for your own sake, not for their sake, but for God's sake. May you yearn to show love and kindness because you yourself have known the love and kindness of God. And because you know the love and kindness of God, may you want to not only show love, the love of God, 
But may you want to show love for God by loving and being kind to other people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you loved us for your sake. That you loved us because you are worthy of ultimate love. That while we are your enemies, you showed mercy and compassion and kindness to us. Lord, may we be overwhelmed with the love that you have shown to us, with the love that you have for us. And Lord, may the love that you have for us, may, may that give us a desire not only to show the love of Christ, but that we would show our love for Christ. Lord, would you be our ultimate love? Would you be our ultimate comfort, our ultimate security? Would you be the source of identity? And Lord, would that overflow into kindness for other people? Lord, change our hearts. We cannot do it on our own, but we need you to change us. So Lord, would you do so for your glory? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.